What's up, world? I'm Matt Newberg from Hungary, and this is The Feed. Each episode, we'll dive into conversations with the industry insiders who are leveraging technology to shape the way we eat. On today's episode of The Feed, the Hungry Trends community sat down with Ashwin Wedeker, Chief of Staff at Gorillas, a new pure play small basket grocer that delivers items in less than 10 minutes from over 115 dark stores. We chat about everything, including the shifting consumer behavior from weekly stockups to on-demand purchasing, Gorillas' full-time labor model, and sustainability when it comes to food waste and e-bikes. If you're curious about the battle of convenience and on-demand grocery, this conversation is for you. So I'm very excited to be here with Ashwin Wadikar, Chief of Staff of Gorillas, which is a vertically integrated quick commerce retailer of 2,000 fresh groceries and convenience items delivered in less than 10 minutes from over 115 micro-fulfillment centers across Germany, Italy, Spain, Netherlands, France, Belgium, UK, and now the US uh, with NYC. It is the fastest growing unicorn in Germany, having reached a billion dollar valuation in less than a year since being founded in May of last year. Ashwin, welcome aboard. Awesome to have you. Matt, thank you very much for having me. Excited to be here. I mean, I think there's no hotter topic right now in food tech than quick commerce. And so we're really excited to, to kind of dig in here. So yeah, before we really dive in here, it'd be great to kind of get a quick background on yourself and, and kind of how you landed at Gorillas and what is the chief of staff role really entail? I think some people are familiar with chief of staff, um, but it'd be great for, to just kind of start there. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so how I how I got started at Gorillas, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I, I was doing my MBA at Harvard, um, finished in 2020, finished in the middle of the pandemic and uh, or the start of the pandemic rather. And um you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do really at all. Uh, I knew I didn't want to go back into consulting. I knew I didn't want to do banking, a lot of the kind of traditional things that an MBA might do. I also knew that, you know, I wanted to leave the US, have an international work experience. And so I was looking at Europe mostly and, and looking at Amsterdam and Berlin and, and London and all the startup scenes there. And um, I, I don't know, I think something about the pandemic and doing everything on Zoom made me really want to do something in ops because it sort of couldn't be outsourced or done on a laptop. And I was getting frustrated with all my Zoom classes. And so I was excited to go join a company that was a, a, an ops focused company. You know, when I just talked to the founders, when I, when I, when I understood a little bit more about the vision, I just thought it was going to be a really successful company. Obviously I, I I'm not going to say that I necessarily predicted this, but, but um, <laughs> yeah. That's 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 how I got connected with Gorillas when I was still super small, just a warehouse or two in Berlin, and I I just I just moved over to join my role. I mean, chief of staff. I, I it means different things in different contexts. What it means for me is, you know, I've just been doing various special projects for Khan, the CEO and founder. You know, I was based in Berlin for probably six seven months, and then moved over to the U.S. fairly recently to kick off the US launch. So that's been kind of my full-time focus for now. So chief of staff for me for me right now just means leading the US launch in, in whatever way I can. And yeah, we'll sort of see what it means in the future. Amazing. So quick commerce has really come up in the last few months as like under this new noun, but I, I guess it'd be helpful to kind of start with, I think where it all started, which is in Istanbul with Getir uh -huh. and, um, kind of the history there and then kind of talk about 
the European players, if I'm not mistaken, you know, I guess in 2021 alone, I think we've had close to like $2 billion of capital deployed in this space. And I think just the other, the other week we had about 800 million deployed in a single day. So it's uh, been pretty wild. So I'd love to get kind of the timeline from your perspective of how this has kind of evolved. Yeah, I mean, so Gutierrez, I, I don't know intimately the founding story there, but I know Gutierrez is sort of the, one of the older players based in Turkey, started in Istanbul, and they you know spent years kind of just expanding in and around Turkey. But I think Gorillaz was, you know, sort of the first or one of the first to, to bring this into Europe or, and, to, and starting in Berlin. So, I mean, I don't know too much about, about the Gutierrez sort of founding story beyond just that. But yeah, what I do know definitely is that whatever has happened in the last 12 months has been crazy. I don't know why Gatir was founded, you know, several years ago, and then it took quite a bit of time for this to catch up in, in, in the U.S. and Europe. But I guess that's just the way, the way it goes. And the competition, I mean, as you alluded to, has been insane. There are obviously a lot of players, ton of money. Yeah, to say it's a hot space is, is definitely an understatement. <laughs> So as I've been studying this, and I kind of think it started for me like maybe last summer when you know I was looking at you know dark stores like Yandex and whatnot, mm-hmm. and, and obviously GoPuff, which has also been around for a while. But it, it seems to me like this is a mishmash of a lot of different things. It, you have convenience, you have liquor, you have grocery, but like what the vector really is going towards is whatever you might need instantaneously. And I guess want to just dive in to understand what is the role of 10-minute delivery, which is something that like consumers have never had in the U.S. before. Like, I don't think there's really anything that's ever come close to that. Maybe like Max Delivery in New York City. I don't know if you've yeah. ever heard of this company, but they were, you know, obviously we had Cosmo. I don't think they were that fast, but you know, like what is the role of of these services you see in, in, in consumers' weekly lives and daily lives and what is the job to be done and who are these customers and what are they, what are they looking to services like gorillas to solve for them? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. I would say that when we got started, there's a concept in Berlin called Spätis, which is sort of just like in New York bodega. And we were sort of very defiantly not Spätis. We were not a bodega. We were a supermarket and that's always been pretty core to our DNA. So we've over-indexed on fresh. We've over-indexed on local partnerships. We are, you know, fundamentally a supermarket that delivers in 10 minutes. I think the initial need starts with, you know, I'm in the middle of cooking dinner and I realize I forgot, you know, whatever, a tomato, an onion, whatever it is, and then you can get it on demand very quickly. But I think people soon realized, at least in Berlin, when we started, you could actually do your weekly grocery shopping with Gorillas, with the products that we have. And not only that, it's a lot more convenient. It's fairly priced. It's instantaneous. It's just a much better model for consumption than going to your local supermarket and standing in lines. And, you know, especially in the middle of the pandemic, this was not a particularly safe activity either for many people, or it was difficult to do. So I think that, you know, with all that put together, Gorillas, our DNA is, is as a supermarket. But then I think the broader question is, what is 10 minute delivery really serving or what is instant delivery really serving? And I think, you know, as I've thought about this, it just feels like another sales channel, right? I mean, e-com comes in and disrupts brick and mortar and, 
you know, it's taken years to kind of find an equilibrium. I, I think vertically integrated stores, whatever they're selling, whether it's super, um, groceries or, or convenience items or both, or if it's liquor, will just be another mode of consumption. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a right now consumption, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be, I absolutely need this thing in 10 minutes. Otherwise, you know, my dinner's going to burn or whatever. <laughs> it's just a more convenient way to to consume and and it's a it's a, a better model for consumption regardless of what it is i think we you know gorillas obviously index is pretty hard on groceries but but i think that you know in the future this could just be considered another sales channel regardless of what's really being sold so you're saying you think you could there could be other services that do what gorillas does but just for other verticals that are non-food like other higher penetrated potentially e-com verticals i think so i mean i, I you know, I think that the the question is always sort of what do you need in 10 minutes? And I think food is a, a really big answer, but it may not be sort of may not be the only one. But right. I think for, for, for us, like, yeah, we're, we're incredibly focused on, on, on being a supermarket. Got it. And what was sorry, what was the original term you used that you, how you guys started the, the kind of the analog? Uh, yeah, we're, we're not a, we're not a Speti. Speti is like a, a it's like a um, Berlin bodega, German bodega. Oh, got it. So I, I kind of want to dive more into this first party model and, and why why you think this might be more economically viable than what we've seen here in the US, specifically the Instacarts and and Ubers of the world, yeah. because now we have Uber getting, you know, really, really big into um grocery. They just announced mm-hmm. that they're that they're gonna buy out the rest of their their shares in corner shop. So Talk to me about why this is a better model. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I love this model for a bunch of reasons, but I think first and foremost, when you vertically integrate, you have a, a degree of control over what you're doing end to end. So the consumer experience is really good. That means, you know, we can make sure that we're delivering on time, 10 minutes. We can, you know, have some control over inventory, what we sell, what people want to want to buy. And, and we kind of have a full end-to-end experience. And I think that that allows us to, to serve customers really well. I mean, I think the, the other part of the model, obviously, is that if you're, a vertic- if you're vertically integrated versus um, third party, you're, you're actually making money on the products themselves rather than just on the distribution part of the, of the, of the model. So I think the model, when it's executed well, when it's, when it's done right, is, is super scalable. It's the best value proposition for the customer. And then also, you know, I, I think for, for the employees, um, I think this is sort of the right integration of, of a bunch of different facets to, to deliver a really good value prop all around to all stakeholders. And yeah, I think, I mean, I, I, you know, we talk about the consumers and getting things in 10 minutes and, 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 and the assortment and all this stuff. And that's great. But I do think that the, the benefit for, you know, employees, riders and store employees in particular is, is massive. So yeah, let's talk, let's break apart that entire value chain and, and start with, I guess, yeah. why this is better for consumers as far as like, you know, the food waste that goes in their fridge and then work our way over to the labor. But let's start with the consumer. Yeah. So, I mean, on the consumer side, I, I think it's something like 40% of food, of all calories that are created in the world are wasted somewhere along the supply chain. And so obviously a lot of that happens upstream at the farm level or at the distributor or wholesaler level, but a lot of it's going to happen at the grocery level and a lot of it's going to happen at the consumer level. And I think that the reasons behind it are, 
you know, demand planning for, for mass supermarkets, which are huge, can be very difficult. And consumption is difficult to plan out, especially when you live in an urban environment where people who want to live a more kind of spontaneous life, you know, you don't want to plan out every single meal for the next seven, 14 days. But when you've been waiting in line for an hour just to get into a grocery store in New York, which can literally happen sometimes, you know, that's not a trip you want to do every day. Um, that's a trip you barely want to do every week and, and maybe not even that. And then you kind of limit yourself. You have two options. You either waste food or you limit yourself in terms of flexibility, in terms of having a little bit more of a spontaneous life. And I think mm-hmm. with the gorillas model, you just buy what you need when you need it and then you eat it. And I think it's, it's right. I mean, it's sort of, it seems quite simplistic to say it like that, but it's really true, right? Like, I don't need to plan out any meal because gorillas is always 10 minutes away with the items that I need to make dinner or lunch or convenience items or whatever. And so you don't have to plan out weekly grocery shopping. And so you just, you just buy what you need and then you consume it. And I think that the, that this model at scale when executed right will result in a lot less waste, definitely at the consumer level. But I also think that going upstream, you, you start to get really good demand planning. You have smaller footprints than, than typical supermarkets. And so there'll be a lot less waste at the, uh, at the, at the retail level too. And so, I mean, that's hopefully the ripple effects even further and further up the supply chain, but at least at the, at the sort of consumer and retail level, you know, there's a, when this model's done right in that scale, there's a, there's going to be a lot less waste. And I think that that's, that's great. That's really part of sort of gorilla's ethos is, is everything we do, we try to do sustainably. Um, and I think this is kind of one primary example of it. So, so who are these consumers that are like, I, I would assume like families are less likely to, to do kind of quick commerce because they're more about planning out their meals for the week and doing meal prep. But is it safe to assume that these are mostly Gen Z millennials that are really taking to this in the U.S. so far? And how does that look like in, in Europe as well? Yeah, it's an interesting question. So I think that the data in the U.S. is still relatively scarce. I mean, we launched a few weeks ago we're still learning about our customers and I think it's going to change city by city and within a city like New York, it's going to change neighborhood by neighborhood. I think that's also a great part of our model is that we are able to do hyper-local assortments and, and, and planning and we can serve the customers of that neighborhood very specifically. But um, in Europe, we, we sort of saw it as maybe starting with spot needs and then kind of migrating over to a bunch of different value propositions, right? I think young families would definitely use it um, instead of, you know, lugging home four bags from a grocery store and walking up four flights in an apartment um, to, you know, feed your family for a week, you can just order gorillas and, and you just have it at your door in 10 minutes. So I think we're seeing that anecdotally in, in the U.S. too already, which is that young families like it because they, you know, if you have kids, if you have a family, I mean, a grocery trip can be quite an endeavor and, and um, you know, gorillas can take a lot of that burden off of you. Um, but I also think, yeah, Gen Z millennials in terms of kind of spontaneous living and spot needs, um, there's a lot of that too. So I actually think that, you know, though, though gorillas started with this idea that, you know, you can have kind of things instantaneously, it's, it's sort of the model is so, I think it's so good and so flexible that you can actually serve a bunch of different types of customers along the, uh, in many different use cases. Very cool. I mean, one of the, just as an aside, like I think um, I heard on the, a recent interview with the founder of GoPuff that diapers was actually the fi- fastest growing category or something around baby products. So 
that's very telling, I think, of of what this opportunity holds for the, for all you guys. Yeah. Going now, shifting towards the suppliers and the brands that you're working with. Mm-hmm. One of the things I'm really interested in is like how you, how your assortment can change on a city by city level to curate kind of some of the best in breed local suppliers. Whether it's you know I saw Black Seed Bagels and Acme mm-hmm. Smoked Fish and that kind of thing, and all these bakeries that are now kind of playing at this kind of hyper local retail level. You yeah. talk about how Gorillas is is becoming this new discovery channel for consumers to to find and discover these these brands and you know what that whole flywheel looks like between them interacting and discovering that you know the brand on your platform and then maybe going into a restaurant or going into the store and trying it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think um this is one of the most exciting parts of what we do, which is that we have tons of local partnerships and you can think about it in a bunch of different ways. So to, to the consumer, you know, whereas you go to a typical grocery store, you're, you're likely not going to find your black seed bagels there, right? You're likely not going to find your local partners there, but we can sort of deliver that to you. Um, but then it's also good to be, you know, we can give you, you know, there are a few black seed locations, but, you know, I know there's not one in the Upper East Side, for example, mm. but, you know, we'll be able to deliver that to you, right? So you don't have to go downtown or over to Brooklyn to get black seed bagels. You can just get that to you in the Upper East Side. Hmm. I also think that, you know, from a, the value prop exists for the, the suppliers too, for the brands that we're, that we're showcasing. Um, obviously, black seed is a, is, a, is a fairly well-known one in New York, but we are, you know, excited to do all sorts of promotion and, and, and spotlights on, on local brands that we find is, are worth trying, right? Even if they don't have a huge customer base in, in New York or in the US, for example, we, we are able to spotlight um, different brands that we think are really, really exciting to try. And we can, we can, do, we can do product giveaways. So we've started you know, with a fine and raw uh, uh, um, chocolate bars. We did a, mm-hmm. did, I did a giveaway with them for all of our first time customers. And, you know, I think sort of most exciting is, is, um, we have, a we're able to spotlight different partnership opportunities for different events. Right. So for, for, we have a, a partnership with King street bakery, they're doing kind of an exclusive pride cake for us for the month of June for pride on Juneteenth, for example, we, promoted a lot of our black owned brands like Island Pops and Sylvia's. So I think that, you know, our ability to work with partners is not just for ex- exciting trip drivers or, or whatever. That's obviously part of it, but I think it, it definitely spotlights brands. We'd love to, we'd love to be kind of the platform that people turn to, to say, what's really popping in New York? Like, what do I need to try? What are the best brands? What are the hottest things out there? both in terms of the kind of the known ones like Black Seed, but also some of the smaller ones that we think are worth trying to. So so one of the terms that I love is our meal solutions and even the term like grocerant, because throughout the pandemic, we've seen a lot of grocers effectively become restaurants. So I'm just curious if we can just dive in a little bit into the mix of SKUs between like donuts and chocolate and bagels or but full versus like full-on lunches that you could have or dinners that you can have like how big do you think that's going to be over time and do you think that that's going to end up becoming like the dominant way that restaurants actually deliver versus going through these marketplaces that's a good question i think in terms of the balance 
So at the heart of the question is what what's the balance between sort of prepared foods and and typical grocery staples, right? Yeah. And I think that that probably ties back into what I said earlier, which is you know we'll, we'll have to see what really what what really works. And I think again, the really exciting part about gorillas is that because we're hyper local, we're able to identify exactly not just what you know a city needs or a, a region needs or a country needs, but what the people of downtown Brooklyn need, for example, or the people of the Upper East Side need. And so I could see it being a situation where we kind of, just like we tailor everything else about our assortment in different stores, we might even over-index on some more prepared foods that are in, in one of the neighborhoods rather than others. But um, I mean, for the moment, like we're, we're, we're still, we're still learning about the customers. Obviously we launched just a few weeks ago, but I think that that's the model allows for that flexibility over time. But yeah, I could I could see it being a bigger part of the assortment down the down the road, at least for certain neighborhoods or for certain types of people. Cool. So we covered like why this works for consumers as far as like the food waste and and yeah. like the on demand, like you know, busy schedules, and we're gonna dive in I think a little bit later into like predictions for post COVID life. Mm-hmm. Um, but and then we've talked about the local suppliers. Let's talk about the third piece, which is obviously very controversial, which is labor, and mm-hmm. typically you know. You know, the gig economy has has been very scrutinized with Prop 22, but you guys are doing full-time employees, and I know there's also issues on that front, so everything is kind of getting worked out across both fronts. You just kind of talk to me about why you're able to to take on these workers full-time and what that future looks like and what those workers are going to kind of demand over time. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, 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 I suppose it is a controversial topic in many ways, but I mean, the way that I see it is the store employees, the riders, they're literally the heart of the business, right? Everything that we might do at an HQ level is just, just serve them. And it just wouldn't make sense to me that they aren't employees, right? Like they are, they are the business. They are what we do. We are, are all in service of the stores and look on a, on a, on a sort of more, moral lens, right? I mean, I see, I see third party riders out on the streets and, and at biking around New York, weaving in and out of cars and, and, um, they don't get healthcare from, from the, the companies that they're, you know, I wouldn't say working for, but are contracted with, I guess. I don't see how we can't provide full-time benefits and full-time and good pay for, for our, for our full-time riders and store employees. I just, I don't see how that works sort of economically. I don't see how it works from a value prop perspective to the customers. Part of being vertically integrated means that you need to kind of get everybody and everyone in the same family. And that's, that's what we're doing. But, but yeah, I also don't just don't see how it works just from a long-term sort of, it it just, it's just not the right thing to do for our riders. Right. I mean, for, for us, we've just made the decision that we want to hire them full-time. They will get benefits. um, They get fair pay and it's pretty, pretty core to what we do. And the reason you're able to do that, of course, is because you're, you have the gross margins to, to support it. Like, I guess like, where do you like, talk to me about why this, why this works for you guys and not necessarily other companies? Yeah. I mean, just, I, I won't comment on other companies, but for us, yeah, we, we, when you bring everything in house, we make the margin on the product. And so that allows us to take on different types of cost structures or start our cost structure up in a different way. And that means that we can, you know, that we're, we're able to, to, to hire all our riders and store employees full time. Um, I also, you know, 
and it's it's circular too, right? It's it's because we make money on the products, we are able to hire our riders full time, and as a result, that enables us to deliver on our ten minute promise on a consistent basis. Whereas I think if we if we had a, a different sort of model or approach, that piece of instantaneous delivery, which is, I mean, that's fundamental to who we are, is uh, that wouldn't be quite as quite as easy. Yeah, no, it makes total sense, and. Yeah, if you're just doing gig work, you're kind of left to the whims of whenever people are ordering, and then you're you might get some batching, but you, the chances of that actually happening are are probably pretty slim. So that makes total sense. And I know this having signed up and become done a DoorDash rider yeah. to myself. I guess my big question is like, and I know that there was like a Wall Street Journal article that asked this recently, which was like, who are you disrupting? Right? Is it the local yeah. mom and pop bodega on the corner? Is it CVS? Is it Walgreens? Is is are is it liquor stores on the corner for for you know the players that do sell alcohol? You know, like or is it yeah. is it the DoorDash marketplaces? Who are the, who are the winners and losers in this over time? I mean, my my hope is that the winners are the customers and the employees. I think that like if you do this model right, you're going to deliver incredible value props to customers. You're going to enable a place where where people can work full-time with benefits. So I, I, you know, if nothing else and the brands that we spotlight too, like if nothing else, I think those are kind of the, the two or three, the three winners of this model. Who are we disrupting? I mean, we're, we're, you know, we're a supermarket, right? So we think that we're probably, you know, we're delivering most of the value that you get out of, out of a, out of a going to a supermarket and then hopefully a lot more with, with the instantaneous delivery. You know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know who, who, the losers are going to be right. Like we'll sort of see, have to see this play out and I don't know if it'll ever even be framed like losers. Right. Because I've been thinking a lot about the balance between e-com and, and, and brick and mortar um, from several years ago. And then seeing a lot of D to C companies like Casper, for example, now get brick and mortar locations and, and come full right. circle. So I think that there's always going to be room for multiple channels. And I think as long as the, the value proposition is there for the customer, we'll find that balance so I think that's probably, you know, years away from, from ever really coming up with a clear answer on that. But I think there's always room for more channels and more players as long as there's value proposition. And I think that we definitely deliver that. That's what we're focused on. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you like CVS is doing their own delivery and it's mm-hmm. like through the mail. And it's like, it's like t- two days or something. Um, you know, I see them at that being a really hard place to compete, but yeah, you're right. Like as you build that flywheel between online and offline, that should kind of strengthen the proposition if those retailers can get it right. I mean, just one interesting stat is that like, you know, I'm looking at like Foxtrot, for example, is, mm-hmm. is a new up and coming retailer where they got a dozen locations on the East coast and about 50% of their sales are e-com. Um, the other, the other half is in store. And I think there's a real flywheel between kind of the two. Any, any thought about like you guys potentially ever getting into that space or is it too soon to tell? It's, it's too soon to tell. I mean, I think we're, we're excited about the model that we have and what we're doing. And we think that there's a ton of potential here. So I think that's our focus right now. Yeah. I mean, Fox shots an interesting example for sure. I mean, I, I went to, I went into one in DC and I think that the in-store experience is super different from what I expected. I mean, it's like a cafe, not exactly what I was thinking, but it's, yeah, an exciting example of sort of how you can have just multiple experiences sort of embedded in one 
in one company. So, you know, kind of along those lines, like what are your predictions as, as far as like, so I'm looking at the sales data right now for online grocery. It looks like there's about a 16% decline year over year uh, in May um, in grocery, online grocery spend and even a similar percentage decrease from April. Um, I'm assuming that a lot of that has to do with vaccinations and people just going out to eat more. Yeah. Maybe people using gorillas more. But, um, <laughs> you know, I guess my, my question to you is like, what do you, where do you see this kind of going into the summer and to the back half of the year as far as predictions for what demand for quick commerce will look like as we, you know, kind of reopen the rest of the country? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think the model's here to stay, right? Like, I don't think this is a COVID model at all. In fact, I think, if anything, the ability to go sort of live spontaneously and instantaneously is now back because you can go out to have dinner and you can go out to, you know, see friends and and you don't want to plan out your days anymore, which, you know, in the depths of quarantine was kind of the only thing we really had time to do. So because people are so itching to have a flexible life again, I actually think that gorillas is perfectly complementary to that. I think it actually makes more sense now. And I think that the 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 just the the, the value prop we provide just means that when you try the experience, you'll you'll find how easily it can slot into your life. I mean, that's sort of sort of the whole idea. You don't really have to, there's no planning involved. So I don't think these macro changes of vaccines and 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 COVID swings are, are gonna really have a detrimental impact um, at all to, to, to what gorillas is doing. Got it. Yeah. I, I think I agree too. I think, I mean, I'm, I actually was looking at data from the UK and it seems like actually the majority of orders there are ex- what are known as like express orders that are under 40 year, 40 pounds. And, um, you know, the other 40, yeah. so it's that 60% and the other 40% is something like the weekly stock up. I think, as we, re, you know, people go out more, that percentage will, will of, of express orders will increase and people will want that instant, instant grocery. So it's definitely fascinating to see. I don't know what it, what it's going to shake out to be here, but uh, I think it's pretty much neck and neck right now. Mm-hmm. So this has been really, really illuminating and I appreciate all the candor here. And I, and we have a lot of interesting people in the, in the room who, who are working in the space. So Appreciate you diving in. I think we would love to get into some audience Q&A. I had some pre-submitted questions from some of the folks here. Kind of want to dig in here. This is a big question that I've had is like, someone asked, will the model for, for grocery ultimately address the entire you know, $100 to $150 weekly purchase for U.S. households? And like, will you need to expand your selection to get there? Like, is that a goal of yours? Or do you just kind of want to figure out like, what that optimal 2000-ish SKU selection looks like? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think there are two things that drive the $150 weekly spend, right? One is the full SKU sorbent, which is, I think, what the question is getting at. The other is the frequency, um, which is which is the weekly part. I mean, just addressing the weekly part first, I mean, I think it's just more typical. I don't have data offhand to support this, but at least anecdotally, I would know that it's more typical to do you know, daily grocery shopping in Europe and more typical to do weekly grocery shopping in the U.S. And I think that gorillas, one, among among hopefully many things, one of the things that we might do is, is sort of change that. Like, sure, you can do your weekly grocery shopping on gorillas if you want, but I do think part of the point is that you you can just buy every day and it's really no, like it's no more inconvenient, right, than, than 
doing just just one trip a week. The other part of the question I think is on the on the hundred fifty dollar piece in the full the full SKU assortment. Yeah, I mean, I think that because of our model, because we're vertically integrated, because we're on demand, we build out a real estate footprint and an infrastructure to deliver. So I think that, you know, we've already expanded our assortment quite a bit from when we first started in Berlin. Um, and I think that we're, we're, you know, realizing we're serving more and more of the customer needs. And I think that that's, that's key, right? We do want to serve as many of our customer needs as we can. You know, I don't think we're going to have the SKU assortment of, of a, you know, like a Walmart anytime too soon, but... You know, I, I think we are able to expand assortment and serve more needs. So I think that's something that we're interested in doing. The other piece of it, though, too, is just using good data analytics and consumer purchasing behavior to serve, give the best X thousand SKUs, whether that number is two or three or whatever, to to the neighborhood, right? I mean, I think the, the best 2,500 SKUs for you know, Upper East Side and for Bushwick are going to be pretty different. And I think that we will be in a position to find out what those are and and bring those to the doorstep of the of, of the neighborhood. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a combination of, of just serving the neighborhood, being hyper local, being flexible on the assortment, and then continuing to sort of expand and, and and serve the needs as best we can. One of the terms that I really like to use is this idea of like network pantry. Have you heard that one? I think I stole it from Fridge No More, but um, the idea that like every neighborhood has a network pantry. And that there's like data feeding that. And it's just like a consolidated pantry that everyone uses. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, that's exactly right. Have you like seen people like go really crazy on the service and just like order like, I don't know, hundred items. And it's like, okay, we can't put this in the back of the, of the driver and we can't meet our 10 minute delivery time. I mean, like it's a good problem to have, but like, yeah, kind of going to this point of like being able to support that kind of weekly stock up is that ever is that going to become an issue or is that kind of a fringe case it's more of a fringe case um i think that like based off of the way that we you know can kind of lay out our store and the, the proprietary tech that we have the, the 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 playbook that we've built we're able to to serve even pretty big orders wow in 10 minutes or less so i don't think that you know we we rarely meet an order that we you know don't feel confident serving Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, we'll see. I think if, if there's going to be a market that, that tests us on that capacity, it's going to be the U.S. where, you know, people are more used to kind of bigger weekly grocery shopping. Yeah. So someone asked that you're currently in New York where the popula- population density is extremely high. How do you think about expansion to suburban areas where the population density is significantly lower? And would you still be able to offer that same SLA of 10 to 15 minutes? Yeah. That's a good question. I mean, Density is, is great for us, obviously, and there's kind of a lot of places with reasonable density that we can we can start with. So I think that that's, you know, that's where we'll start. Um, if we're thinking about like pure suburban, like classic U.S. suburban markets, like I grew up outside Boston in a sleepy town where you know, 10 minutes on a bike isn't getting you very far. You know, I think that that's kind of a different question. Um, and I think that one that we'd probably have to think about, but I think for now we're focused on we know what we do well and we're excited to just keep doing it. Right. It. That's, that's where we're going to start. Yeah. I think like out here in LA, I think it'd be hard to do, to do this by bike, you know, as much as there's like demand for this, like I would hate, you know, I would love to not have to go to CVS, but um, it just feels like you have to get into driving now in a whole different beast. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, sustainability, like I mentioned is very key for our model. And so I think that regardless of what we do, 
you know, cars is probably not something that we're going to tune to, you know, whatever it is, making sure that we have the E in front of it is pretty important. Got it. Yeah. We want to build a sustainable business model, right? I mean, yeah, we're, we're incredibly fast growing and all this, but like we need to, whatever we do, we do sustainably and whether it's environmental or whether it's labor or whether it's, you know, consumption or whether it's a delivery mechanism, it's got to be sustainable. So. So we have a, a couple of readers um, who work in real estate. Um, I'm not sure what you can share here, but they're asking about your the what's the the view on real estate strategy for instance grocery as far as like lease versus own how big and what you know to my knowledge it's like generally like fairly small like ground floor retail um you know there's been a abundance of this retail that has come online with covid obviously so it's probably yeah. no better time to, to to come in here but anything you can speak to the real estate strategy i did see that you guys are also marketing your service on on your windows Maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I, the real estate strategy is, is going to be is going to be key for us. It's one that we've we've done a lot of thinking about. We feel sort of confident that we have a the, the strategy that's going to benefit our, our needs short term and long term. I mean, I'll say in terms of the immediate focus, it's um, you know it's it's a gating function, right? I mean, it's not necessarily the biggest part of our cost structure. It's not necessarily you know we're not you know I'm sitting in a WeWork, right? Like the builds on this are are considerably more complex than anything that we'd, we'd have to do um, because we're, we're obviously not activated spaces, but, but it is a gating function. So it's, it's obviously critical to have the right real estate approach in order to scale. Yeah. I mean, in terms of signage and marketing and so on, yeah, you've probably seen the outside of some of our stores. We have some, we have some signage. I mean, we don't go, we don't go crazy, but we, we are excited. We're super excited about our brand and it's an opportunity to showcase it. I don't know. I think we have a, a really cool brand and I, I love, uh, I love any opportunity we get to uh, to um, showcase it a bit. So um, there was some reader that's pointed out the Delivery Hero CEO said on on Twitter that they were losing about one euro per order. You know, I guess you don't have to pull back the full curtain here, obviously. <laughs> but um, you know what? I guess how do you develop you know positive? unit economics over time, what are the key factors that are going to go into that? And, you know, um, when, what's going to happen as it heats up here in the U S as far as, yeah. you know, promos and stuff like that, they're going to eat into that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think just sort of taking a step back, there's the, there's a fundamental question of, is this a sustainable model economically? And, and, you know, we think that when executed right, it definitely is. Um, because of the, the key thing we've had on a couple of times here, which is which is that we'll make money on the products, which is where a lot of the margin actually is. And so if you can kind of build a cost structure accordingly, the, the model is definitely viable. So I think that, you know, just starting there, we feel good about the model. What are the key success factors to getting to it? Well, I mean, that's, yeah, that's the, that's the, that's sort of the secret sauce, but I will definitely say that like, we feel, feel confident with our approach and, and, and that, you know, when we execute this right, like when this is when this is done, when this model is done correctly, it's definitely economically viable. Yeah. Is there anything you can share about, like at a high level, when you enter a new market, how people are finding out about you guys? And I'm assuming that's a mix of like online and word of mouth. And anything you can share on the customer acquisition piece of this? It's come up in, a bit um, in the Q and A. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously there are all the typical marketing channels, right, all across the funnel. There's there's brand building, there's engagement building there's 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 growth work and social campaigns and so on um i think word of mouth was really big for us initially in berlin and i think it's going to be key for us in every city that we go to because i think our 
the, the, the experience for the customer is so good that they sort of can't help but talking about it, right? You know, you can get your groceries in under 10 minutes. I mean, there's really not much you can do in New York in under 10 minutes, right? <laughs> but being able to get your, you know, entire, you know, days, weeks worth of groceries in under 10 minutes is crazy. And I think people, you know, <laughs> feel compelled to talk about it. And, and, and so those, that's the best way to grow, right? I mean, you just deliver an incredible experience and, and, and people, uh, people, people will start talking about it. Yeah. So someone in, in the chat here is asking, you know, why do you think that the U S was not the first one to, to market in this category of 10 to 15 minutes? You know, it seems to be coming really from Europe. Obviously you guys are headquartered in, in Berlin, I believe. So what is it culturally, geographically unique about this that lent itself to that market? I I actually have no idea. You know, I think we were just kind of just crazy enough to do it. And I think that saying that we're going to give you groceries in 10 minutes seems like a, you know, ambitious and even slightly crazy undertaking. But I think that we were just excited to, to do it. And I think that, you know, we were just based in Berlin and that's, that's all it was. I don't know why this hasn't been done in the U.S. necessarily, actually. I think it really has to do with like kind of the 15 minute city that this guy, uh, I think his name is Carlos Marino, kind of outlined. And it's like kind of this idea of like, things looking a lot at like Paris and a lot of these cities like mm-hmm. Amsterdam where you have a lot of people on bikes and kind of the ability to like tap into, you know, all these different services, whether it's like, you know, socializing yeah. with your friends and in, in some sort of third place or like healthcare services, all these things that are kind of available to you, like very short with a short walk or a bike ride. Yeah. And I think, I think that's definitely part of it. I mean, you know, the bike culture here, forget culture, just the infrastructure around bike lanes is not as good as in Europe. I mean, it's getting there, it's getting better, it's getting a lot better, but it's it's not, it doesn't have the same history, I don't think. So I, th- I definitely think that's a part of it. And biking, I mean, our, our, if you've listened to anything or read anything about our, our founder, Khan, he's an avid cyclist. He's biked from Turkey to China. He has a bike tattoo, wow. like the, all of this stuff. So he's, uh, I think getting around on a bike in like the sustainable, efficient way of doing things is, is uh, you know, one of sort of the, the fundamental building blocks of our company. Also, one of the reasons that we will maintain a rider first um, company culture. Um, so, yeah, I think that's definitely, I think that's definitely part of it. Someone is asking here, um, what areas are you focused on improving in the customer experience? And maybe you could speak to potentially getting into some sort of loyalty or subscription product. Um, I know a lot of other services have yeah. this, you know, nine ninety nine or maybe five ninety five monthly service that waives the delivery fee. Any any thought to that? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a few there are a few facets here, right? I mean, obviously, operational excellence and continuing to deliver on our promises is key as we scale, um, scale both kind of within neighborhoods, within cities, within countries. And then I think, you know, thinking about the assortment and making sure that it's the right one for the customer is also, is also pretty key. I think this, you know, the second part of the question is getting towards sort of more product or business model work around, um, subscriptions. And I mean, you know, we'll definitely see, I think it's, it's certainly like an interesting, it's certainly interesting and we'll something that we'll think more thinking about, but yeah, no, no, no immediate plans yet. Cool. Okay. And I think kind of last question here as we we're wrapping up, you know, can you talk to some of the challenges of managing fresh inventory and keeping the spoilage rates 
low? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is another great part of the model, right? S- smaller spaces it means means high inventory turnover, which means that we're wasting less, right? And so spoilage is a is is a key part of that. You know, we're going to be and we'll have good demand planning so that we'll be able to you know know exactly what to buy, how much to buy, and uh, uh, given what our customers want. And um, I think. If you if you kind of manage that whole part of the supply chain correctly, you're going to be wasting a lot less. I mean, all produce, spoilage, et cetera. Obviously, you know, ensuring that we have super high quality products at all times is the number one priority in the warehouse. So making sure that we have great quality checks, great inventory checks, everything is super high quality. And, you know, we use manual labor in the stores because it's, we think, key to making sure that the inventory is always on point. And that the quality is really high. So, yeah, I mean, definite focus, but also definite part of what the model allows us to do well. Amazing. Well, this has been a really fascinating talk. And I'm really uh, inspired by, you know, like the sustainability pieces that we've been talking about from the entire kind of the entire constellation of, you know, consumers, suppliers, and the workers, and I think all the, every company in the space needs to think about it. So thank you for, for helping us think through that. Um, if, if people on the consumer side want to try Gorillas, where can they use you? Yeah, so I, we're, we're live right now in um, Bushwick in downtown Brooklyn and in Chelsea and parts of the West Village. We're launching um, three more stores next week on the Upper West Side, Williamsburg, and um, Long Island City. So, and, you know, wow. obviously more more... Certainly more to come this this summer and a lot of exciting expansion. So, This has been really fun, um, crazy time that we're living in. And uh, yeah, wish you all the best and can't wait to try uh, Gorillas when I hit New York this summer. So, so thank you. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. And if you're curious to get a firsthand look at the cutting edge of food and tech, check out Hungry.tv. That's Hungry with No You, where you can join in on live conversations like these or sign up for the free weekly newsletter.